Hello and welcome to Very British Futures, a series about UK television's unique contributions to science fiction over the decades. Today's programme might not be considered science fiction by some, but it's with great relief that we can watch it as speculation about the future and hope it stays that way. We're going to be discussing the 1984 nuclear apocalypse drama, Friends. I'm very glad to be joined by Rick Hoskin and Andrew Grimes. So hello, how are you today? Hi, Gareth. Um, I'm very well. This is Rick. Uh, I am very, very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Gareth. It's a joy to be here. Now, Rick is one of the busiest people I know. He's writing award-winning comics, video games and novels. And he's no stranger to the nuclear apocalypse, having been lead writer on two long-running post-apocalyptic book series, James Axler's Deathlands and Outlanders. Andrew Crines is a lecturer in political science and has written and co-written a score of articles and books. I was just wondering what you're working on at the moment, Rick. Uh, I've been working on a graphic novel script uh, for the Red Rising series, mm-hmm. uh, volume three. Uh, so I'm just doing the first draft of that. It's about 120 pages long. So it's been a bit of a slog over about six weeks. Once <laughs> we are happy with it, because it goes to Pierce Brown, who's the creator of Red Rising, he will uh do a little bit of a rewrite and we'll have a tweak of it between us and then once we've done the graphic novel i then get to do it all again as an audio version which is almost the opposite format one you're trying very hard to play in visual the second time you've got no visuals to play with so that's my main uh piece of work at the moment and uh, i'm probably writing a book or two i usually am uh but nothing i can i can talk about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is is it quite a challenge to kind of go between a comic strip well as you say between a comic strip and a radio script it they they are uh as i say they're kind of opposites so it is interesting but ultimately you've got the dialogue in the middle that holds it all together and it is playing with dialogue and that that's always very enjoyable so that part translates it's just working out what previously were descriptions that only an artist would see, how you turn that into some kind of narration that's that's of interest to a listener. But I'll be honest, it's been a while since I've written um, sort of long-form comics. And I've, <laughs> I've had to get back into it because it's been, it's been about a year since I last wrote a long comic. I've only been writing sort of four or three or four page things. Well, um, having really enjoyed your earlier Red Rising comics, um, I'm going to be looking forward to that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us as well, Andrew. And I know you're, you're a pretty busy writer yourself in your own fields. I was wondering what kind of work have you been uh, involved in lately? Uh, well, recently I've uh, just fin- I've just finished uh, writing uh, a chapter for a forthcoming collection, which will be available uh, very soon on uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which will be uh, enjoying a book launch sometime in September. Uh, the book on Jeremy Corbyn basically seeks to reevaluate his leadership. It includes a wide range of contributions from leading scholars in their field to try and understand the impact of Corbyn on uh, on the Labour Party. 
also uh, recently had an article published in an academic journal on the uh, leadership on the leadership selection process of Keir Starmer, uh, which uh, hopefully uh, will capture the eye of some uh, interested parties, which is available to read for everyone to, for free, uh, which is available on open access. So it's in the journal of representation. So if you're interested, go along and have a look at that. Uh, give it a read. Let me know what you think. Um, and also starting a new project looking at Theresa May. Uh, what is the impact of Theresa May's leadership on, on British politics and also on Conservative Party politics more broadly? So uh, although been very busy over recent years with other projects at the moment, yeah, very much still busy on, uh, on the uh, process of leadership selection and the impact of party leadership on ideologies within British politics. Oh, well, that sounds fascinating. And uh, I shall make sure I put the details and the links into uh, the blog post that uh, accompanies this podcast. We shall turn now to today's subject. The early 80s witnessed a heightened awareness of the Cold War and the threat of nuclear Armageddon, one that was inevitably reflected in popular culture. The government's 1980 Protect and Survive campaign, which appears in this film, had already entered infamy for its ineffectual advice. The Green and Common Women's Peace Camp began in 1981, Raymond Briggs published When the Wind Blows in 1982. And in 1983, US TV movies The Day After and Testament were released. Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood was number one for nine weeks in 1984. Fred's was a co-production between the BBC, Network 9 and Western World Television and was instigated by the Director-General of the BBC, Alistair Milne, after he had reviewed Peter Watkins' 1966 TV play about the aftermath of a nuclear attack, The War Game, which up until then had never been broadcast, although it had had a limited cinema run. Director Mick Jackson had overseen a documentary for the BBC One science series QED, A Guide to Armageddon, and had already amassed a significant amount of research on the effects of nuclear war. Barry Hines, writer of Pez, was asked to write the script because of his reputation for politically aware working-class drama. Sheffield was chosen as the location because the Labour City Council's nuclear-free policy meant that they were sympathetic to the programme makers, and Jackson and Hines' research made them believe that industrial cities were likely to be targeted. Most of the extras were either locals or members of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Jimmy and Ruth are a young couple starting out life together in Sheffield. Their biggest concerns are Ruth's unplanned pregnancy and decorating their new flat. But in the background, newspapers and television are reporting a build-up in hostilities between the United States and Russia. Meanwhile, in Sheffield City Council, Mr Sutton, the peacetime chief executive, has begun making precautionary measures, stockpiling resources, arresting subversives and setting up a headquarters in the basement of the City Hall. As the news grows more frightening, panic buying turns into looting and the roads are choked by people leaving for the countryside. Then, on May 26, 8.30am, the nuclear attack begins. 
Fred's was broadcast on BBC Two on Sunday the 23rd of September 1984 and was followed on Monday by an episode of The Natural World on the eighth day about the effects of a nuclear winter and a special Newsnight debate about nuclear war. It was repeated the following year as part of a season of programmes to mark the 40th anniversary of the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Also in 1985, it won BAFTAs for Best Single Drama, Best Design, Best Film Cameraman and Best Film Editor. The film was released on VHS and Betamax by BBC Video in 1987, followed by DVD editions in 2000 and 2005 by Revelation. Then in 2018, Simply Media released a restored cut on DVD and Blu-ray. So we'll begin right at the beginning with um, with a spider and a spider's web. So what do you think about that as as an opening? Well, I think it was an it is definitely an interesting way of highlighting the interconnectedness of societies through a visual uh, metaphor uh, to be able to kind of show the audience a sort of a physical representation of the abstract title because the abstract because the title threads uh, unless you kind of know what that's referring to it kind of seems a little bit strange a little bit odd so as an opening answer to what threads is i think it's a very good way of visually drawing the attention of the audience in another way of looking at it of course is that given the events of the entire uh, play it's a way of showing how threads of the threads of society are later on picked up and attempt to put them back together uh, almost strangely enough like we've been doing with the pandemic uh, some things mm. which have just completely collapsed and no prospect of being able to return within the uh, pandemic period or within the uh, nuclear fallout period. But there are bits there that still exist, bits of authority. Uh, but mm. even then, over the long time of which it is taking place, those themselves also begin to crumble. Then we see a new society emerge at the end, uh, which is basically a medieval society with very, very uh, little authority, little jurisdiction from the rule of law. Uh, no doubt there is still semblance of uh, political or at least autocratic control, but these will be very concentrated in very, very specific places. London, for example, probably is the first place to gain some kind of authority. But like the Middle Ages, just because they had a king or they had some kind of political group, the actual ability of that, um, of that monarch, that sovereign, to affect the lives and the laws of the land was limited, very limited. And that's the kind of society which ultimately they are able to pull back together through reuniting some of the threads of, uh, of civilization. I thought it was curious, actually, because it's very quickly forgotten, isn't it? And it felt like they'd filmed the whole thing and then at the end went, we really need some way to connect this as, as this title threads I've come up with. So, uh, yeah, it felt like it should be called strands or webs at that point. So I thought that was a bit strange, but I feel churlish criticising it because it's otherwise a very, very good document. Oh, good drama come documentary because it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? I know what you mean. I think it is in a remarkably well-written drama. I think it's really, it's the only misstep. And it's mm. curious, you, right at the start, it does feel a bit 
on the nose. It, it, you know, if this was a Hollywood film, I'd be saying, oh, that's a Hollywood producer interfering and saying, you've got to have someone explaining what Fred's means. Yes. And, which I don't think you do. And uh, it's, it's the only unnecessary bit, I think, in, in the story. By contrast, the opening scene with uh, Ruth and Jimmy on the hill in Jimmy's car, I think that's a, a lovely bit of storytelling as Ooh. their sort of mundane conversation between them suddenly gets interrupted by the roar of a jet plane. I, I'm, I've written notes about this, so I'm, I'm going to refer to those. But one of the things I like about this is the way that it starts as a drama it starts almost as a normal kitchen sink drama doesn't it mm. and the story is that we're being presented with is, is a fairly mundane one that ruth discovers that she's pregnant and what are the families going to do about it and it's it's they just happen to be living where as you say where jet planes happen to be taking off but it's almost a a momentary detail of their lives and then we carry on into this well, I think it's about 15 minutes, 20 minutes of quite a normal and mundane story about how this young couple are going to have their lives changed. And it tricks you, doesn't it? It tricks you into thinking this is something you've seen before. And it's it's very well written. It's mm. very engaging from the start. The characters are absolutely deftly defined right from the get-go, which is, you know, to, to the writer Barry Hines, it's to, it's to his credit how well he does that. It's very much almost setting itself up as a new soap opera or as, mm. a, as you say, a different kind of drama where you get to know the characters, uh, you get to uh, uh, hear what they what they like, what they enjoy doing. It is, and, and it very much would be a soap opera sort of dealing with those, as you say, class issues in the north of England and attitudes towards employment and work and surviving, almost like a northern version of EastEnders, arguably, uh, mm. in that first act. You know, it, but uh, but lingering in the background for all the news reports, you really get a sense of the growing tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, the problems in the Middle East, uh, the tit for tat exchanges, which then start to get a little bit more, a um, little bit more intense, and then cul culminating at the end of Act One with you know what. Mm, the, I think the way it builds up is really cleverly done. It's, For example, we see the headline of a newspaper and it's just placed on the counter of the mm -hmm. shop and you've got this completely different conversation, this mundane conversation going on. The question there is which one I, is the viewer supposed to be paying greatest attention to? Because instinctually, you'd be more interested in the characters and the human part. So you'd want to know what their lives are about. You want to know what it is one person's doing with another. Will they get together? Won't they get together? What are they going to do when the pregnancy is announced? These are interesting things. And, you know, the sort of issues about the, about the marriage. Uh, these are elements of a soap opera with the growing tensions in the background, just almost incidental. And it tricks you because you don't realise that it's going to shift into almost... You're watching these people's lives as a documentary where initially it was a drama. I think that's a very, very clever trick that it that it pulls that. But of course, it does have some some moments where it breaks that illusion, doesn't it? Because we get their story, we get them on the hill, and I think they're listening to Chuck Berry, aren't they? Which, but then I think it's about 
seven or eight minutes in, we suddenly get like a caption appears on screen and the narrator starts, you know, the, the omniscient narrator starts telling us like, this is Sheffield, it's got this kind of population, it's got a very heavy industry and it it like gives you facts that you don't expect in a kitchen sink drama. So it it manages to kind of stride those two things very nicely for a while. But basically, you're watching a drama for the first. Uh, I mean, I've, I've mm. said it, it breaks down into four parts, and that's the first part. It could have easily have gone on in that vein, and it would have been entirely credible as uh, a drama about sort of class and unemployment and you know, a, a marriage is up and ups and downs, I mean, yeah. and it is extremely. There's nothing. Oh, here's just a bit of profunctionary storytelling it has a life of its own personally i think the narrator narration yeah narration is very well used i believe there was some conflict between barry hines and mick jackson over how much the narrator should be used uh i don't know who was on which side of the argument but personally i think they get the balance right and i think it's the narration suddenly dropping in these disturbing grim facts it just it does help build up the tension how do you feel about the narration of it do you think they well, hit the right level with it it is a document it is a docudrama um and so you'd expect to be informed on a few things as well i think in the case of threads uh, i i would argue that they do get the level about right with information because it helps because the information they give is relevant to what's going on at the time and bizarrely, it helps to sort of push the narrative on in order to see why things are happening in the way that they're happening um, and why sort of lengths of time are basically skipped over in the way that they are because, mm. yes, the, the nuclear winter will last a while, it will last a couple of years. So we just need that information and then move on to what happens next. Uh, it gives you uh, some very useful thought, well, very useful information on how much... Uh, sort of um, fallout has been sent up as a result of the explosion uh, and how it's likely to affect people uh, on the ground. So no, I think the narration is fine and I think it is interesting, although it does sort of drop at one point for a good, good while, mm. but it comes back at the end to tell us basically, uh, tell us what's basically the, the ultimate consequence of the nuclear mm -hmm. attack. It's an interesting choice as well, isn't it? Because it steps out of it being a drama, but not too far out. Because normally you would get that information in a film or a or a TV show, and it would be perhaps perhaps presented as a news bulletin, and it would be almost. Uh, and here, this reporter must provide some exposition, so you know what's yeah. going on. He did. There's a tiny bit of that, um, which is you get the speech, and that's um, it's about ten minutes. I think you get the um, in they're in the pub, and you get the news broadcast. And you get their president's speech, which is essentially saying there are tensions in the Middle East and we're not going to put up with Russian interference. And it's, it's this sort of progression towards war. And that's handled very well, I think, because it, it presents what are the, the, the facts of this world, what's about to happen without being too, too obvious about it. But it also does a very clever thing, which I think I imagine the director decided to do, which is that is all kept off camera. So we get mm. the but we don't see who the president is he's just a voice so we're not we don't attach it to oh hang on he's that bloke who was a bit part in grange hill or you know mm. <laughs> we don't see that 
terrible, you know, it's a stock photo of the White House and a terrible set that he's... he's <laughs> it's all done, because it's off camera, it's believable. Also, so I think some science fiction fans like me might well recognise the president's voice as belonging to Ed Bishop, right. who's a, a familiar voice from Captain Scarlet and UFO... How old were you? Were were you in in nineteen eighty four? Uh, I would have been twelve or thirteen. Oh well, we're fairly close because I I was about fourteen, I think. Back in eighty four, <laughs> I I didn't I didn't actually watch it uh, the first time around. Uh, I, I probably my parents thought it would be too too intense for me. I suspect. I, I think they would have been right. I didn't see it. Um until many years later when i was working at the bbc archives actually and we we my office got it out one day and we watched it while we were working so i kind of saw it in bits in fact the first time i saw it but it was shocking even then mm, definitely it's it's as it does it stays with you uh mm. i think i think this is this is it'll probably be the only uh program that we do in this podcast series that I actually feel a bit guilty about asking asking you and Andrew to watch it because it's like oh because you've got to go through that trauma of oh, watching oh, it. I'll be honest, I I know it's a terrible thing to say, but I genuinely enjoyed it very much. It is harrowing. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. fascinating, and it there's no point where it feels like it cut corners or cheated. It's it's very convincing throughout, and that's what makes it. It never pulls a punch or obeys as it were the conventional hollywood rules yes. about about what you can do there's a moment coming up that i thought oh oh my god they actually did that <laughs> there, late, later on and i i think i think what you've just said there leads me to where i was where my notes go uh which is I made it about 13 minutes in before we actually get the voiceover that turns this into kind of a documentary. And it manages to shift gears very cleverly and sort of walk this tightrope between the two genres for a little while. And then it kind of becomes a documentary for a little while. But at that point, it's almost like you've been watching these characters in a drama, but okay, they're real. And then you're sort of living it with them. I think that's very, very cleverly done. Like we started watching this kitchen sink drama Oh, these characters weren't expecting this. Now we're along for the ride. I that, that that's exceptional that moment. Mm. Um, but I think what comes from the main impact of it is uh, the sort of the setting up without a central character. All of the characters, bar one, are ultimately uh, ditched uh, over the course of the narrative. In fact, all of them are really. We are mm. not left at the end with any of the characters still alive that we started with. Uh, mm. That just shows how incidental the characters are largely because it's about real people's lives and the impact of the nuclear war and the nuclear winter, which follows. Then the, uh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead again, but the nuclear winter and then the end of that uh, period and the radiated Earth. But what, what I found quite interesting at the start is there's the suggestion from the news broadcast and from the locals on the street, you know, you've got the CND protesters and you've got the uh, the union representative who's worried about what will, you know, this war and this bomb mean for jobs around these parts. And it it's something that's presented it so far away because it's sort of like uh, it's in the Middle East, isn't it, wherever this, this conflict is going on. Um, and it's so far away everybody's kind of they're very they're either idealistic or they're self-centered about what they're going to do without realizing this could just be dropped on you at any second and of course we know what's coming 
but they don't. And that, that's a very interesting thing. Uh, the idea that everybody's quite oblivious to it until it happens. There's there's sort of almost a tonal shift where we go from that to people, as you say, you, people start stockpiling and looting and you get the moment where suddenly we're presented with those public safety films mm. and everything becomes a lot darker and a lot more real at that moment. And you're sort of being told... You know, this is your fallout room. This is how to protect it. Hide under a mattress, make a little, what looks like a little camp, you know. Mm. And then it's like, what to do if somebody dies in your fallout room? And yeah, how how you're going to deal with them, wrap them in plastic you know, uh, bin liner bags and put them in another room, then bury them six days later. You think this has suddenly become very, very dark and it's really grim. And it's so upsetting when you watch those moments. Because um, these ordinary people have nothing to do with this. Uh, it's a dispute between the US, the Soviet Union, and issues in the Middle East, and yet suddenly Sheffield gets it in the face, mm. which I think <laughs> illustrates the unfairness of it. And, and Barry Hines' ear for dialogue, I mean, you were saying about people being oblivious to it. I think he, he gets that fact that the when they're having a drink in the pub, and, he's, and, mm. uh, and Jimmy sort of like, he wants to watch the TV, and his friend is like, well, what can we do about it? You know, yeah. it's it's so it's kind of so out of their sphere, so it seems. What can be done? It's a strange film. I mean, it's a film that, on one level, is a call to arms, but at the same time, it's kind of sort of mocking some of the people who are trying to prevent this war. There's a there's that moment where I think the TUC, the leader of the TUC implores the sort of like the sides to come together yeah you're you're just a union boss sort of like for the sake of our jobs come together isn't it (laughs) i mean that is another little thing that the fact that it's set in sheffield an industrial city there's the ghost of unemployment and the whole uh industrial malaise is something else it certainly has a little bit of a, a feel of this is what Thatcher's Britain looks like, doesn't it? It's got a little bit mm. of going on there. Yeah, so it, it certainly is an interesting approach. But I put here, I feel this is a, a programme of four parts. And mm. I think the first part is that kitchen sink drama that, that basically gives us two families. You've mentioned there's the councillor as well. And he's woefully unprepared, isn't it? We realise mm-hmm. that we're going to be in charge of keeping everyone safe are basically you know managers managers who've got no idea how to how to make any of this work at all but Mm. for the most part it's about two families then it gradually becomes really about ruth and and a little bit about her family as time Mm. goes on but i think that's the first part and then the second part is that moment where it becomes public information films and everything shifts gear and Mm. and and it's interesting watching it at the moment because, of course, we're recording this in 2021 and we've been through this COVID pandemic and we're still going through this COVID pandemic where we've sort of had this thing where the, suddenly the government's involved in our lives and telling us, for your own safety, you've got to do this. So so there's an element of we sort of recognise some of what's going on because suddenly it really did happen. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't wasn't like that. But it's certainly uh, nothing that we've seen in our lifetime. But as I say, that that's the point I think. And it's I've written here. It's about thirty five minutes in that we start to see the public safety films, and that is the point where 
this becomes much more of a documentary, albeit a fake documentary, obviously. But it's and it's mm. and I love there's a moment where you've got the headline on a newspaper that says um stay calm says pm and i thought isn't that <laughs> that's that's just perfectly sums up how how the covid pandemic went wasn't it mm. <laughs> um, but yeah i think that's the point where you can see what's going to happen we we know that that they're going to drop the bomb we know this is going to happen it's sort of like there's a ticking clock and what that what this moment shows us is this isn't going to be one of those things where a hero rises up. It's not going to be Snake Plissken turns up and saves the world. This is just going to be rough for these people. I think it does. It it well conveys that sense of of stumbling to Mm. some extent into an Armageddon because right up until the bomb drops, you keep getting every side, America and Russia and Britain, and everyone keeps saying, sort of like, we don't want to do this, sort of like, let's step back but you've got to do this but at each at each level we keep taking another step forward even as even as they're saying that i don't think we even quite know who drops the bomb do we because no, uh, that information is no longer there nobody knows yeah i think you're right and i think it's also but i think it's to the film's credit that it they resist the urge to do any caricatures i mean we've already talked about how the you know, the realism of the characters. There's no obvious villains. Uh, uh, all the council workers, all, all the council officers, uh, are basically just people trying to do their best, even though it proves to be completely ineffectual. There's no obvious kind of bumptious, sort of hawkish characters, uh, or sort of caricatured little Britainers, or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, uh, what, what's telling, isn't it, is that how many people don't bother to turn up when, when the moment comes? And mm. the council is something like, I think it says a third of the of the staff who are meant to be there just didn't bother to come in or didn't answer their phones or their cars mm. broke down. And that's actually talking of the phones. I noticed there's a point at which the decision is made by, by the council, by the government to cut off all non-essential phones so that all phone lines are purely for the like councillors who are running what's what whatever happens next to coordinating supplies whatever they're going to do and i thought that that's a dramatic moment then but today Mm. that's the end of our world isn't it i mean we couldn't have this conversation now without without the use of the phone lines you know i mean absolutely when you think how annoyed people were just by the recent death of Prince Philip and the BBC mm-hmm. sort of like dedicating all their airtime to Prince Philip. And people got very angry about that. Yeah. And that's just a very small thing compared to, as you say, the government taking over the phone line and the internet. Mm. Societies are held together by communication. If all modes of communication were to stop tomorrow, uh, we would very quickly and very hastily see the fragmentation of society. And that's what we see in threads. And that's uh, and one of the reasons I would suggest, sorry to link it back to the pandemic again, one of the reasons <laughs> that we haven't really seen the collapse of society, as Charlie Brooker spoke about in his uh, screen wipe last year, um, is because the methods of communication are still very firmly in place. Uh, mm-hmm. Television is still going. The internet is very well, very much still going. In fact, the internet has been fundamental to keeping society together. But if you take all the methods of communication away, as we saw in the fallout from the nuclear war, uh, bits of authority begin to try and maintain a degree of control, 
but ultimately they wither away and die. So, shall we talk about the bomb being dropped? I'll, I'll ask you, and I, I'm going to take the lead role here. How how effective do you find it when they drop the bomb? Uh, it's in, it's extremely effective. It's an extraordinary sequence. I love the way that they do it. It's just this series of images. I mean, as well as the obvious images that you would get with collapsing buildings and the mushroom cloud, but it gives you all these little just snapshots of images, the woman urinating, the milk bottles melting, the I mean, that is a, a brilliant it's, it's, idea. I always thought when it when it first starts, it it's horrible, but it doesn't actually feel that bad. It's like a bomb's gone off, a massive bomb's gone off, but people are still alive. They're still running around, they're trying to get shelter. You think, okay, the people are going to be fine here. Um, it's going to be bad. People will have lost their lives and things will be horrendous in society for a while. But the essential infrastructure of society will still remain. And then the second wave comes and then buildings start blowing up and then things start catching fire. People get buried and you realise, no, this is not going to be sort of a horrible thing that's happened, but we can move on. This is going to be a major transformative effect on the planet and then they keep coming from wave after wave uh so in terms of narrative and storytelling it really is the end of that world of the world as it was in the mid 80s and a whole new world has been it's going to be created out of it so uh all those threads i talked about a few moments ago are gone all the infrastructure of society are gone there are some remnants but they're not going to last that long um but in terms of how it tells the story it is very much the transformative moment would also say it is, in terms of visual effects, absolutely brilliantly done. Um, now, you could judge uh, 1980s uh, effects with today's effects and say, it, you know, there's some areas lacking. But I would dispute that. I would argue that even for that, it is still very, very brilliantly well done. Very good nuclear explosion over Sheffield. The buildings blowing up are fantastic. The burning bottles, the burning faces. And of course, afterwards, when she's walking through Sheffield and sees the corpses that are just still in the street, this is an indicator of how much society has ended. Because mm. ordinarily, somebody would have gone out and picked up those corpses. Somebody will have gone out, an authority figure will have gone out and picked up the bodies and taken them somewhere. The fact that they're still there is, a, is another pointer of the extent to which society has ended. Uh, and that a new, a new society, a new normal, to coin a phrase, um, is now emerging, and that new normal is a horrible one. Mm, I think some of the, the the images that people most take away from Fred's come in that uh, in that initial sequence when Ruth is walking about. I think it's when I've been talking to one two people leading up to recording this podcast. Uh, mm. One of the images they often mention is the woman's sitting with the baby yes that's uh, just just kind of staring um that is absolutely a, a difficult sequence to watch there's the screaming old woman she's probably about 40 i say old woman you know? <laughs> um she's like just, just looks in horror at the camera and she's like doing a silent scream because she can't believe mm. what's happening. and that that's very a wonderful piece of acting um, and also, I think the sound in that sequence is very good because it goes completely silent, doesn't it? We've got, I don't know how mm. long, maybe 15 seconds of absolute silence. Like, you don't get silence on TV, and suddenly it was. 
and after it you get i, I suppose it's only the nuclear winds if, if that's the correct term for it where it's sort of like this howling hurricane of noise afterwards after this thing has dropped like and everything's restarted again and it's terrible it's you know we're, we're in dante's inferno now and, mm. and we can live in that and that i think that's exceptional um i've got here that's 50 minutes in so it's about halfway through the the program as it as it runs and it is so stark there's an et doll isn't there, in there that burns which, which really puts this in a certain time period and later on you've got the star wars figures that they chap is um lining up and i i wondered if perhaps i'm reading too much into this if this was a bit of a comment on science fiction being a bit too twee or if it was just the fact that we are you know effectively filling our lives with pointless ephemera instead of what we should be doing we should be worrying about people dropping bombs i don't know maybe i'm i've put it that's especially that's a someone who's lost his kids mm. and just trying to I think that he's thinking, he's just thinking about his family as he's arranging those Star Wars figures. Glorying that we glory the idea of wars. <laughs> and hey, here's one. Well, there is earlier that that earlier element that you see the that you see the younger brother of Ruth's and he's building that jet plane and yeah. putting it together um, and, and doing the yeah. And and before that, he's um, playing some kind of handheld Space Invaders game, isn't he? I'm going to have to correct myself now because he's he was the younger brother of of Jimmy. No, not not Ruth. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think we knew because yeah, hasn't got a sister as well who's doing a paper round. Is that right, or is that Ruth's yeah, sister? his sister's there as well. And then I was I mentioned all this scene that the bombs dropped and people are now beginning to pull themselves out of the rubble and we then we get that shot and uh, the little boy has been crushed in the in the pigeon coop we just see his his leg sticking out of yeah. the rubble at a at a in a, uh, an impossible angle so and that's such a a, a shocking image i th- i think um that sort of which i think was kind of Part three. Part two is that moment where the bomb drops. And then part three is what happens after us, that immediate aftermath, isn't it? And it's terrible, but it does a couple of very clever things. One is you have the the human cost is shown through the eyes of the counsellor. And it's not the horror. It's not all the something's falling on, on this kid or this person's got radiation burns or just burns from the firestorm, whatever. Those, those are horrifying. There's the counter to uh, one of his assistants in their uh, basement bunker and says, what about this part of the city? How's that? And they say, oh, we can't reach that. That probably hasn't survived. And you know that's where his wife is. And it, mm. they don't say it, but I thought that was a very cleverly kind of worked out human moment where we know what he's thinking. And he acts it with just a touch of emotion we kind of see what he's getting to and then he's like no i've got to carry on and i thought that that was very kind of nicely handled again you see the sense of loss the sense of uh um, just horror on his face so mm, that's it, that i would agree with you there that in fact yes that was one of my notes on that one mm. i think it was such a a well a well written and performed scene that among, amongst yeah. it all Essentially, mm. it's it's about loss, but also I think it is about the human reaction to that loss. Uh, and as we saw in the um, 
as we saw in the drama, when she urinates or when the woman stares with the one with the baby, it is a post-traumatic loss of which there will be no recovery or no help given. After the bomb has dropped, you, the, the film cuts to black and white photos of destruction. They're just black and white stills, aren't they, of destruction? Mm. And I think subconsciously that gives us as the viewer this idea that this is something that's really happened. These are like these feel like factual artifacts. Mm. So as well as draining colour from the world, you know, metaphorically, it actually goes, here's some black and white pictures from this war that you remember that? And I, I thought that was really effective because it it just convinces you this really did happen. Um, mm. You know, in that, that distant faraway land of Sheffield. People have suffered like this before. You know, they're suffering like this now and it's just going to get worse from now on for the rest. One of the striking things about Fred's is that there really is no glimmer of hope from this point on. It is all just a long decline. There, that's uh, um, and that's kind of the point where I think, and you know, I'd, I'd hate to offend anybody who who thinks this is an absolute masterpiece because I'd agree it is, but I think this is the point where it starts to fall apart, and there, there's it carries on going, and you get this kind of surrealness of what the world is, where people are in in such shell shock, I suppose, that as you say, there's there's the chap lining up the the Star Wars figures in, in perhaps in place of his family. And you've got just people holding babies that are just, we don't even know quite what's happened to them. And it's all horrible, isn't it? It's quite, it's like surreal and horrible, the whole time. Mm. And then has to go to hospital to, I think, give birth. And when she gets there, it's just overcrowded people screaming. And there's so much you don't see, which is very, very effective. And I feel it loses a bit of its believability at that point. Yeah, you're right. We've had this quite realistic up to now kind of storytelling. And once mm. the bomb drops, time uh, becomes fragmented. Everything becomes this very episodic. Uh, I mean, Ruth's walk, once she leaves the family home, is, is quite sort of almost dreamlike. She's walking mm. through that ruined city. And as you say, she's seeing all these sites, all these broken people. And then we, we cut again and suddenly we're in this hell. It's like a circle of hell. People screaming. There's people. There's that. Uh, there's one man that he seems to be having his leg cut off without anaesthetic. And, mm. uh, and you get the um, looting, don't you? And looters being shot or imprisoned. And it goes to the, the camp that holds all the looters, which seems so pointless at this point in time. And it, mm. <laughs> it's overseen by a traffic warden. But um, yeah, I think at this point, for me, it falls apart um, because everything becomes miserable. And that's understandable. The bomb has dropped. The world has changed. But what we don't see is any notion of companionship or friendship anymore. And it's really telling. There's a lot of instances of it, but there's a there's a really telling moment where it's obviously trying to get across this idea that hope has died, you know, and obviously mm. it has. But there's this telling moment where um, Jimmy hasn't survived, Ruth's boyfriend hasn't survived, mm -hmm. but his best mate has, and he's, I think he's called Bob. Mm, and yeah. Bob recognises Ruth, and uh, they they seem to gang together a little bit, and they go and they find a dead sheep, and they eat this dead sheep, which is a horrifying scene. Mm. They complain about how cold it is, 
but they don't get together. They still sit on opposite sides of the screen the whole time, as far away as they can. I thought, it's like you're trying to make your characters miserable now. They would huddle together for warmth, wouldn't they? And and we're British. We'd, we'd do work songs. We'd sing. We'd joke. You know, the bombs drop. We'll just have a song about it. We'd still carry on. There would still be humour. But instead, in threads, nobody ever talks. There's no small talk. You get to mm. the... For the next decade after the bombers dropped and people have completely lost any skills of farming or doing anything and it's mm. like everyone's gone to hell for no reason at that point and i felt like it kind of overrated the pudding because it was so bleak for no reason that is one of the striking things i think about the second half of the film is the utter lack of any compassion or kindness yeah. or really any community of any kind well they can't uh, really just... afford it they can't because as soon as society loses everything and it simply becomes about individual survival things like compassion go out of the window as i said earlier on human life becomes cheap and if you're traumatized and you need help then you're not going to get that help uh, largely because nobody else can give them it because they're too busy looking after their own individual survival i've no doubt at all mm. humanity ultimately survived and that um in as centuries rolled on, uh, they will have refound their humanity, I think. Uh, but that, that society spreading from that new dark age will be quite a different one to what we had in the mid-80s. Because I, I don't want to knock the people who made it. I think, I think they did a fantastic job. But I think perhaps they, they wanted to tell a certain story of how bleak it was without any hope left. And they, they had too much time. They, they shouldn't have gone as far as they did. Oh, I think it well. It is a very polemic piece, so it is very much a point of view based on uh, what Barry Hines and Mick Jackson felt once they'd done all the studying. Uh, it was interesting that apparently they went on one of these these weekend training sort of away days for council officers, and a lot of that right. material from the that happens after the bombs dropped in the basement is very much based on their observations there. Even there's that one bit of gallows humour where someone asks for a cigarette and somebody else says, don't you know how bad they are for your health? And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which apparently that was kind of taken verbatim. That was a joke that someone made uh, on okay. this weekend. It's nice that that bit, it's terrible and they slowly die and it's obviously there's nothing really they can do except shout into their radios mm. and it's obvious that they're not really having much of an effect on the outside world and eventually they, well, yes, they suffocate and die. And yeah, like you say, it's so bleak and yet we are given little hints in that sort of fourth act as, as the world decays that there must be some places in Britain that are not quite as devastated, uh, possibly more government, because they get steam trains working again. We get that a couple of photos of uh, a steam train or a steam tractor working. So there must be some places in Britain that have enough organisation that you know people can raise their heads above just surviving in order to make you know to study and learn some of these skills again there's that moment where an airplane flies over all the survivors as they're staggering across the moors so there's obviously little pockets here and there of civilization 
she says that Ruth isn't going to see any of that. Um, yeah, I th- I think perhaps it's just the comradeship isn't there, and that that doesn't ring true to me. Um, but that mm. that's uh, as I, I was surprised that Bob didn't stay with Ruth. He felt like he should have done. He seemed like a pretty good guy. We can always impact something happened off camera. We just don't know, you know. Even if, even though they have this relationship that is fairly kind of basic, it's almost like you say it's strange in the way they don't huddle together because it's a kind of animalistic, yeah, relationship in a way. I have a question for you on this one, which is, what do you mm-hmm. think of the uh, of the Christmas Day part? I think it works in that context of yeah. I think it would have felt wrong if they sung a carol. <laughs> or, or something, or you know, in, even if they'd done it in a really kind of pathetic, ragged way, I found I found it stood out as being a bit out of place. I don't think we got much in the way of dates after the day it started, and it being you know twenty days later and so on. And then suddenly we get a Christmas Day scene that's almost look. This is how it how it is, and look how simple it is, and it's almost like trying to recreate that nativity scene, and it seemed. Mm. It seemed peculiar that it was in there to me. It seemed like an odd kind of artistic deviation in the middle of this story. I know what you mean. I did have a slight... I was looking at it and thinking, is there a famous painting that this is mm. taking off? Because it did slight, have that slightly painterly arranged yeah. look to it as they sit around the that fire. But it's a film that in this... The, the message of Fred seems to be that the children aren't our future. Because the next generation, they are horribly damaged psychologically, probably biologically as well. They can barely talk, sort of grunting, and it's that. So it's a very basic kind of monosyllabic language between them. They've lost and, the English language, yeah. and without the English language, they've lost the ability to communicate. Again, it's about communication and loss. Uh, and therefore they've lost the ability to express ideas and basically ways in which society can function. They wouldn't be able to Mm. recognise society as it was before the nuclear war because they simply wouldn't have a way of understanding what it is they're being told. It's like even when they're showing the words and pictures uh, video to the children, they almost certainly uh, didn't know what was being said or didn't understand it. Uh, The older Mm. generations will presumably have just assumed that they do. But they can't conceptualise abstract notions if they haven't got the ability to communicate them. And there's nothing to suggest that the education that they're receiving will actually benefit their survival. Yeah, that's very true. Which is peculiar, isn't it? That, that's why I say that people seem to have lost skills. And I can appreciate maybe they're, all the children are irradiated and it's affected their mental capacity. Perhaps that's what it's implying. But it does feel like nobody speaks anymore. It, it gets more and more surreal at that point. There is, it is actually, I think that's a good word. I think it is beginning to get a bit really surreal towards the end. Mm. And uh, the figures silhouetted against the sky when the, and, uh, when they're yeah. farming. And that's, whether that was deliberately they were echoing the seventh sign, I don't know. And that sort of, which... Was a big fan of using silhouettes, that medieval mm. set, set world. It's interesting, but we almost lose the narrator and the facts at that point, don't we? And very mm. occasionally kind of told, 
this is the last combine harvester to use the last time it can use fuel um because that's going to run out and we're told that people money no longer exists that people are paid in food and if they don't work they don't eat and and so it's a little bit of that but it's mostly we're just kind of living with these people and their miserable lives also life becomes cheap we saw mm. this when the one of the council emergency council officers when talking about what to do with prisoners uh simply saying just shoot them i don't care um mm. Human life um, is very, very, very cheap, but food is priceless uh, because food mm. is a motivator. And if you can motivate a population to work or at least to try and uh, return some kind of uh, rudimentary civilization, uh, then that is basically bringing us around to power. Mm. Um, and Ruth ages ridiculously through, I presume, the life she's living or... Mm. But yeah, that could be also it, due to radiation sickness, I suppose. Of course. Yeah. Um, but it, it makes points without having that narrator to tell us what we're going to draw from them, which I thought was interesting. Also, I thought it was in some ways a bit of a shame that we didn't get a bit more of that narrator or the, the on-screen captions telling us what was happening in the rest of the world, because we get hints of it. And perhaps we're going to feel like the characters. We've got no idea what's really going on in our world anymore. But I would have mm. loved to have seen that, even if it's just something, you know, uh, mass destruction of the world, uh, great geographical movements of people, radiation in land. I'd like to have had a little bit more fact at that point, just so we knew where we were. Was it just they dropped one bomb on Sheffield and that was the end of the world? Did this war carry on, you know? Are you aware of Fred's having any impact on sort of politics in sort of like the mid-80s? I'm not sure about political effect, but I certainly think it had an effect on the people. I think it made people realise just how dangerous this game was. And ultimately, pressure from the people can impact upon political decision. So I think we've come to um, our final thoughts, I think. And would you, would you like to go first, Rick? I'm, I'm happy to, yeah, of course. Um, to say I enjoyed it feels like it belittles it. Uh, but I, I got a lot out of Threads, tremendous amount, and I'm glad I've watched it a couple of times. It is harrowing, is, is I think, the, the best word that you can apply to it. It's very, very engaging, and it is, it is devastating to watch, and it does stay with you. Uh, I do feel that it slips towards that, that final quarter, I think kind of gets into the world of... of a little bit too artistic speculation um but that that's a very minor criticism on what is a really a, a astonishingly well made and um tricky piece of of television because it fools you into thinking it's going to be one thing and then it turns around and it almost becomes a, a documentary and it tries to educate you and and you know, put you put you off getting getting stuck in a nuclear war at any point. Uh, <laughs> but I suppose, uh, in some ways, that that's perhaps me being a bit flippant. But at the same time, this is 1984 that this was made, when actually nuclear war and its results was the world of entertainment for a lot of a lot of things. There were some you know fine Mad Max type movies coming out and various knockoffs. So it's interesting mm. to see what is still a drama. But not not taking that route, not 
glamorizing it or glorifying it and not being silly there aren't crazy mutants running around i suppose we'd question whether it's science fiction or not but uh, it's science fiction in the in the truest sense that's based on science and yet it's a prediction so it is science fiction but no thoroughly enjoyed it i'd, I'd give it a, a rock solid nine out of ten i think that um for a one-off two-hour play uh the fact that threads is still so important and so memorable and still had a lesson for us today in terms of um downplaying tensions that involve nuclear weapons i think it's it the story that it tells shows the destruction of society linked to real people's lives uh, and i think for that its impact remains as strong now as it did when it was first broadcast uh, you cannot watch threads without going away with a sense of fear that fear being this must not be allowed to happen. And we should not allow rising tensions between anybody uh, in the modern world, be that the US, Russia, China, Middle East countries, anybody to trigger a, a set of events that leads to this. Because whatever your political argument and whatever issue you've got with another country, destroying the planet is certainly not worth it. And I think that is a timeless message. And I think that is one that is as relevant today as the day when it was first broadcast. Well, you're not going to get to too much disagreement from me. I think you've you you put it very very eloquently. I think it is a <laughs> remarkable piece of work. Uh, it's uh, it's undoubtedly polemical. It's very much a view on nuclear war and uh, its results. But uh, there's nothing wrong in that. There's nothing wrong with a film having a point of view, and it's extremely the the first half is very subtle it's full of lovely little touches to some extent i quite like the way the kind of the it, it, the almost time itself breaks down once the bomb and it accelerates first of all it's still fairly naturalistic as people are recovering and trying to survive and there's still room for subtle touches like such as the off-screen death of ruth's parents so we we just discover their horrible fate from from what the soldiers report, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then gradually as society around Sheffield certainly collapses even further, everything becomes increasingly fragmented. And as you say, we we have to kind of pick up the clues almost of what's going on towards the end. I think it's a, a remarkable piece of work and I'm very glad that uh, I've had a chance to, to watch it again. Thank you very much for taking the time to to join us. Thank you very much for listening. And we shall all get together again for another episode soon. So goodbye for now. You have been listening to Very British Futures, hosted by Gareth Preston, with guests Rick Hoskin and Andrew Rowcrimes. Music by Chatriar. You can hear more of his splendid music at chattryart.bandcamp.com. Rick Hoskins' latest novel, Bystander 27, and Andrew Rowe Crines' latest book, Corbynism in Perspective, are available from all good bookshops. You can follow us on Twitter, at FuturesVery, or visit garethpreston.blog for more information. Next time, The Nightmare Man.